0: Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The School of Discipleship. Welcome to our series on Bible Interpretation, the reliability and usability of the Christian scriptures in our age. In this eight-part series, Reverend Preston Graham examines the veracity, objectivity, and applicability of Scripture amongst the world's ever-changing approach to biblical interpretation, and ultimately answers how we can be assured that the Bible itself is sufficient.
1: All right, so I'm going to pull up the revelations real quick, but um, first, is there just any, and and again, I can't give you a whole lot of time here, but is there just... There's just this pressing question that you've been thinking about, or maybe you just thought about, related to Bible interpretation generally. Anything that we've talked about or just something we haven't talked about, you'd say, okay, I have, a, I have this question about how to read the Bible, how to whatever. Does anybody have a question like that or, or a comment or how would you address this issue or whatever you'd like to, to do here?
0: Yeah. Oh, good, Apocrypha, yeah. Why
1: did that happen? Yeah. Well, I can give you the shorty, and then there's a longy. <laughs> but um, so, so a couple of things. Um, you're asking the question of canonics. We did talk a little bit about that. And how did the church decide which books were in there? Most of the Apocrypha were added in the Middle Ages, uh, uh, well later. And it was somewhat related to some of the transitions that were going on in the Catholic Church, quite frankly. But many of the, the apocrypha, most of them, were written in the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament. Um, they were pretty informed by the Maccabean revolt and the, the era that was going on there, which became very politicized in Israel, etc. Um, it's not to say that there aren't some very helpful. Like when I interpreted. Uh, you know the Book of Romans. Um, I was I, I used some of those books to at least see how words were being used or or what the context could be because I think part of Romans deals with that. So there's some re- there's some historical value in having access to them. But the big question was: Are they? Do they represent the apostolic tradition? Um, do they conform to the apostolic interpretation in, of the Old Testament? Um, uh, were, do they have uh, were they written by, was there some ability to discern that there was a real prophetic lineage within them? And so basically through the the kind of test that was being utilized um, in, the, in the third century, no later than the third century, we had our canon pretty much solved. And by the third century, those were not texts that were being quoted or utilized as sacred text. So it really comes down to a later season. They were around, but they weren't being utilized as a later text. So there it is. Um, you know th- th- they are interesting. They they if, from a standpoint of literature, they're very rich. Um, you could use it for that. You could say, "Hmm, that's very interesting. Stuff's going on here." You know, but in terms of it being the Word of God, we we've just, we we corrected the late edition of them uh, when the Reformation went back to reformulating all of this. Good question. Another question. Okay, what about Revelation? Um, let me give you the, 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 the quickie here. That, uh, there, there are a couple of things I want to make sure you don't miss from what we started last week. Uh, the first thing is, is trying to distinguish apocalyptic literature and the way in which intentionally it's what? It's meant to jolt you. Uh, as we started to look at last week, you remember uh, Revelation starts off with a very high interest of th- this whole thing is a vision. It it is a vision of signs. It's a vision of images, um, and so it's it tells you the very beginning how to interpret it. Um, the biggest mistake is uh, typically to interpret it uh, to try to interpret it um, chronologically, like it's a chronological history. Uh, the fact is, Revelation is set up into to seven uh, repeating episodes of history, like seven snaps, uh, snapshots of history. Um, and they're just it's we call it the recapitulation method. but basically, history is being told uh, in these seven sort of of of, of uh, I want to say it's not sequences, these seven recapitulations. And what you find is in each capitulation, each description, there's an intensity there. There's we're heading towards this great climax that's going to happen in the end. Um, and so when you read it that way, it's pretty important that you begin to see. So, for instance, this is where if you hear of the dispensational rapture theology, where they're trying very carefully to find a chronology, and to do that, they'll start doing all kinds of extra biblical assumptions like, Well, this, this, this description of a first century, this describes. Some people will say that the third century, and they're looking at futurology, but as it's telling you about how future is going to work out until the coming of Christ. And so if you've ever seen some of these highly meticulous maps that are derived from, from revelations, but the fundamental assumption is a couple of things. Even those who would be, you know, very strong, solo scriptura people in, in this group but what they ended up doing is, is trying to make a correlation between these images and signs to things that we have no biblical warrant to make a correlation with. And what ends up happening is you don't end up interpreting Scripture with Scripture, you interpret Scripture with experience, church history experience, even if it's that. Oh, this seems to correlate to what happens here. And so there's this constant, and you see it in the late great planet Earth, if you all remember that, Hal Lindsey stuff. That's kind of old-fashioned stuff. You probably don't know about it, but there was a whole lot of that stuff going around, and 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 so there's this kind of attempt at reading the revelations in that method that would want you to, you know, oh, let's. Where do we see that today? You know, kind of thing. It's much more controlled than that. As I hope to, to illustrate, that it's it's the most it's the most quoted Old Testament, New Testament book in the Bible. I mean, it's. I kind of said that dumb, but you know what I mean, right? It's quoted, Old Testament's quoted more than Revelation than any other Bible. And that's amazing. When you think about almost every page is being quoted by, say, the book of Romans. So that's very important that you you locate the images in the history of, of of the Scripture. And you begin to see that. It's not to say that those images don't correlate to the experience of the first century church, but it correlates to our experience. So in the first century church, they... They, for instance, could uh, locate the great beast with uh, the depiction, and it's described. If you remember one of those things, most people believe it's probably the description of of the emperor uh, Di- 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 Diocletian in uh, Ephesus in a statue that was there. And so now it's 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 portraying the antichrist spirit as coming through the. The persecutions of Diocletian, you know, something like that. So, so it's not that. So we we're, we're free to see how do we see the theology. So basically, just remember, it is a theology. It is mostly a theology of the present, as it's related to the now, not yet manner in which we live life on earth. That so it's it certainly always has the future in sight, but you it really is a book about now. Which so you you start the book with the seven letters. And those seven letters are true for all of us. That, that the seven meaning what? Remember the number seven? It's, he's speaking to the church universal. See? Not just... And yes, he's talking to a specific church, Ephesus, let's say. But what's described there is a universal concept that we all can then study. Then you go from there to the great worship service, and there's this incredible statement going on there that that you could read about in, say, a place like Hebrews 12, but it's the idea that this church on earth is is being uh, located in communion with the church of heaven in that great heavenly worship service. You can see that, again, in Romans 12, It says that when we worship, we enter into the very heavenly places, the festive gathering, it's called. So you basically have a theology of now and not yet, that the kingdom of God has come now, but outwardly we don't see it. And it's and it's answering the question: God, how can the kingdom of God come and life be so hellish? You've answered that question, right? Of course you have. Why is the world still does it really seem like anything changed when Jesus was born? We I hate this. Every Christmas we start singing these songs. Almost every song we sing has more to do with heaven than it does with. Life after Jesus' Incarnation. And when you re- sing those songs, you, you say, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. <laughs> where is he? <laughs> well, that's the question that got really, really explosive during the persecutions after 70 AD, where people are going, I, man, I, I don't know that we're in the right religion here. So this book is meant to tell you you're in the right place. This is exactly what's supposed to happen. Life is going to really suck for a while. You are called to bear the sufferings of Christ, but you will win. And you're going to find great strength and power in your suffering. And that's sort of the basis of that book. So, for instance, the end of the book, uh, notice what happens. Finally, what we think about was what a lot of people think happened when Jesus came to earth the first time actually happens the second time. Heaven actually does come to earth. Earth is transformed, a new creation, new heavens, new earth. And everything that we've been dreaming of with the Messiah will come on Earth. So that's the storyline. Um, there's so much more, but uh, any thoughts about that? You can maybe that'll help you read the handout if you go back and read it. But anybody want to just give me a quickie? Just beware of a chronological attempt in this kind of literalist manner. This is not literalist. You don't treat. You don't. You don't interpret apocalyptic literature literally. You, 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 it's symbolic. But there's enough there to know what the symbols are. Any question about that? I just kind of downloaded didn't I? You don't even know what to ask the question, right? Well, if anything, you've heard enough to know that, okay, if I start seeing somebody predicting when the Christ is going to come by use of revelation, I know I'm dealing with a very different hermeneutic. Or if anyone's sitting here saying, there's a one-to-one correlation between this event and this event in our history, then, mm, you, you know, you're in trouble. You know, if you're looking at these, trying to locate, you know, it particularly gets down to chapter 19 and 20 where you get a lot of this rapture stuff where, what does it mean that that, that, that Satan's on a chain? See, that's a theology. Satan is still active, but he is under the the, the decree of God as to how active he can be. So, by the way, our spirituality what would that be out of Revelations? Are we pessimistic about this life? Huh? I don't know. Sure, there's a lot of horrible and horror shows going on there. Are we pessimistic? Is that the message? Hey, it's just going to suck for a while. Hang in there. Go go, put yourself in, go, go hide somewhere until he comes. That's the fortress. A lot of fundamentalists take that. That that sort of a right, that, that sort of an idea. Just wait for the rapture. Prepare. Well, no, we're not gonna say that. Are we optimistic? As in, you know, health, wealth, and prosperity kind of stuff, optimism. No. What are we then? We are realistic optimist. There's a realism that we that the kingdom of God now comes through sharing in the suffering of Christ. That's how our witness is most alive. And church history has borne that out. More suffering, more, more glorious light is shown through the church. People are talking about America's going down. I don't, I don't want America to go down, don't be wrong. But I'm not worried about the church at all. We will probably flourish. I, I, I would I'd venture to say, before I die, we'll be out of this building. They're going to come and tax us, and we're not going to be able to afford it. And we're going to start having to survive. I don't know that for sure, but there's a lot of movements going that way. I won't be surprised if before I die, um, it's against the law for a church to hold the doctrine of, you know, same-sex, that we do against same-sex marriage. I won't be surprised. It'll be a civil rights issue. And what's going to (laughs) happen, you know? Well, a lot of folks are going to make a deal with the devil because they came to Christ through a very when it was exciting and fun and it was an event and all this kind of stuff, and that's who fell out in the first century, those who really hadn't been discipled and schooled and, and all of that. And then others are going to hunker down and they are going to become a minority and they will become that remnant that you see throughout all of redemptive history and they will just gl- shine gloriously and the world will start to convert to them because they'll say, man, there's no way to explain their faith. There's no way to explain their their willingness to suffer other than this must be true. And that's why the saying is that the church was built on the blood of the martyrs, not the blood of the health wealth material, you know, health wealth prosperity people, but the health wealth of the martyrs. Every disciple died. And yet it's the one single, uh, continuous, uh, socialization, polity, whatever you want to call it, uh. It's the only, it, it, there have been many polities and organizations and nations that have come and gone. The church has been here ever, all the way back. I mean, think about that. It's pretty cool, isn't it? It's been a lot of things come and go, but we're still here. Okay. Y'all ready to move on to the practical stuff? None, nothing we've done so far is practical. Any other thoughts? Okay. Let's go to our uh, get get this thing up and running again. Let's see here. Where are we going? Here we go. Let me get this thing up and running. How's that there? That's weird. I can't seem to find it here because it's uh anybody know where I go here? No, no, don't let me do this. Trying to find where I can turn it into a slideshow. Anybody see it? Where? Well, where? Oh, down. Oh, I was looking up here. I'm sorry. There it is, slideshow. Oh, man. That's not where it is. OK, where would I do that? See, this doesn't look like this one. I don't come in it this way. Where? Down? this one okay thank you for seeing for me oh no this is not what I wanted either I don't want to do it that way but anyway I can't see it I have the way it comes up to me is much it this is crazy I got to flip it here New slideshow I think it might be this let's see there we go that's what I want okay first one we're going to do is text to small group Bible study. How many of you have led a small group Bible study? Raise your hand. About a third of us, four, maybe a little more than that. Okay, so uh, be careful. You're going to feel a little awkward in some of these moments because if you're like me, uh, there may be a few little practices that you haven't really thought about, and that's okay. You're safe. Thank you for serving the Lord and leading Bible studies. And even if you've made a little mistake in some ways, I'm sure God has used you um i did when i came after seminary i had to write my ministry back in athens georgia and just went through a whole litany of guys i, I led you wrong on some things can am we- i just gonna i just gave them a list here are the things that I-, I need to repent of here and so that's it's all right so you know basically let's just talk about you know what the goal is though if you're leading a small group or a community group life groups now what we call them you know what what do you think the ultimate goal should be just put it in your own language what, what's let's get on the balcony what's this for anyway they would know jesus what but you know jesus you already you don't need to come to this bible study to know jesus do you so what 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 makes the bible study so interesting why why is that even a method do you think Okay, you want to go a little deeper, maybe. And what make what does a small group have that helps that happen? Why why would you use that method? Why not just continue to preach on Sunday? Okay. So it sounds to me when you say deeper, you mean that we we more existential in a good way. And is it learning more content, or is it more? processing the content that we learn. I mean, I would probably say you learn a lot more in a good lecture in theology than you do in a small group, I say, intellectually. Wouldn't you say that? But what do you mean by learn? But see, your, your question, what do you mean by learn? It's not more content, is it, necessarily? Well, okay, I'm not saying you don't learn new content, but generally, if you were to compare, Okay. Okay, 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 but you're saying a lot of things that I'm not saying are wrong, but it doesn't sound like the greatest academic ex- ex- you know experience. I-, I would get frustrated. In fact, when I used to take courses, and sometimes there were, you know, if you know my higher seminars, and I couldn't stand the seminars because half of it would be everybody, me having to listen to everybody who knows nothing talk about what they don't know. I mean, I just loved it when the professor would just just... Go ahead, download, man. I'm starving over here. Give it to me. I didn't want to. I I hated a small group. I wanted it to be small enough to where I could ask a question here and there, but mostly it was a very frustrating experience. But if I come into it with an, with the idea that I think more you're talking about, which is, you know, I, I want to learn, but I want to learn in a way that I really can process it, where I can kind of go into my own life and l- listen to other ways that it goes into other people's lives and. There's something mystical about the lo- localism of a small group, right? Okay, that's fair. Anybody else? Active, okay. So, you, you, and why is that helpful? What do you mean by that? Because you're,
0: you're, you have like, the, you have,
1: you have to so, it's, again, you get to process it and think about it and listen to other people help you think about it, and it actually can transform you that way. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll just, let's just, I'm going to go ahead and say, let's concede everything y'all have just said. I'm with you. I mean that. Um, you know, I've put a little definition there. Maybe you've read it while I've done it, but it pretty much is attempting to say some of the things there. Clearly, I want to make the point, though, that it needs to get you to Christ, that whatever happens there, it's most meant to be an encounter with Jesus Christ, and maybe that's what your point was, Anna, you know. So, let's make sure we don't lose that, though. This is an encounter with Jesus Christ. Oh, who isn't it necessarily accounted for, accounted an encounter of, therefore? I mean, we're encountering each other, yeah, but the key is I want to encounter Christ. That's what we're doing this for. I can go to Starbucks with a bunch of friends, have some coffee and have some conversation. This is meant to be an encounter with Christ in the way that you just said. Anybody have a problem with that? <laughs> I hope not, because that's going to define everything we're going to do here. So if that's true, this is ultimately the Emmaus Road experience, if you want to use the epiphany idea. Um, so there's we need to think about how we do a community group or a small group it's there is then so what everything has a liturgy remember the the K.A. Smith study that we had last year um, on that you, you are what you love remember that if y'all remember the Sunday school here you should have remembered that there is no such thing as uh, life without liturgy what is liturgy anybody want to tell me okay yeah good that's what you could say daily but if it's an hour long, is it daily? No, it's a. It's the routine of that hour, or it's the practices, the habits. The, uh, the liturgists talk about habitations, or habitulations, and things like that. So it's it's think of it in terms of movements. Our worship service. You 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 come to Jesus. You come to our church service every Sunday, and and we have a worship service that we we sometimes will say. I haven't said this in a while. I got to say it. Maybe even next time I'll do it. But often I say, you know, some people come to church to hear about Jesus. We come, or to hear about the gospel. I want you to know that this is a service that's intended for you to do the gospel. And you'll learn more by doing it than by hearing about it. This is one of the things I say to the parents. All the parents are gone now, I think. <laughs> well, you're still a parent, Corbers has gone. Um, just a few. But uh, I remind them, especially with their young kids, you know, but they're not understanding a lot of what's going on. Oh, really? The liturgy is constructing their psyche is what's happening. What do you do when you get around God? Oh, you kneel. What do you do uh, when you meet God? Well, you praise, but you also confess, and you also listen, and you also pray, and you also celebrate. And we actually get to eat with them. Now, a kid's getting a lot, and he, hadn't, and he or she may be not knowing half of what you're saying, but they're getting a ton. This is really an important thing that we in this church have emphasized. We cannot divorce artificially the liturgy from the message. There are thousands of studies I can show you on this. One of the great blessings I had while I was in Boston is taking a course by the most preeminent sociology of knowledge professor in the world, guy named Peter Berger. His whole world is predicated on what we call sociology of knowledge, i.e. what we learn is as much learned by doing it as it is by teaching it. So we want to talk about that, you know, what, would it, what is the liturgy of the small group? What do you learn in a small group whose liturgy as you walk in everybody talks about themselves for the first half we pray in the second half we do a bible study and we go home well you kind of start treating god like he's the genie i'm here to bring him my needs dump them down it's still a lot about me and now let's learn about him and hopefully you're learning the gospel and i'm sure it's a good experience but it's very empty compared to what we're talking about here. So, yeah, we're going to want you to really think about um, how would the liturgy context of the actual Bible study shape the experience. In our life groups, we ask every life group leader to, to lead a what we call a, a prayer service or four movements of a healthy life groups, Christ God-centered praise, grace-focused confession, gospel-oriented four-part Bible study, hook, book, look, took, and kingdom-focused intercession and thanksgiving. And it's going to posture us differently, as much as it's going to teach us. Now, you can do all this. You could literally do it in a relatively scripted way, which is still fine. More is happening there than you think. Um, You could do this in 15 minutes. You're going to have a Bible study that's an hour. Probably not. You're going to have more sharing than that, because that's part of the purpose of the group. So let's just acknowledge that small groups are great, have great functions and purposes. Let's be careful how we structure it so that we don't sort of annul the gospel by the way we do small group, which makes it very narcissistic or very, you know, me-centered. Let's kind of keep it God-centered by the structure of the small group. Um, But then um, let's talk about how we're going to lead this Bible study. And here's one of the great weaknesses. Can you come up with, before you've read this, Let's be a little more self-critical here. The small group movement's been a great thing for our church and I think for a lot of Christians. But could you think of some things that could be bad about it, particularly as we start talking about hermeneutics or Bible interpretation? Yeah, good. So it can turn it goes right back into what we've described as a post enlightenment tendency towards subjectivism, and individualism. Okay, that's one. What else? Okay, good. Subjectivism again. That's right. That's right. It becomes, and we start exalting the creative. You know, I, I've said before, but a good sermon is, you don't want it to be too creative. At least not at the fundamental level. You don't want to hear anything new. You want to hear everything old as in it's been around for 2,000 years at least. Um, So that's important. Yeah. Okay. Good, good. I like that. So there seems to be in a small group we're so focused on application that we lose sight of how that would be directed, guided, driven by our doctrine, our understanding of God, the gospel, our theology, some of that gets lost. Is that what you're saying? Good. Thank you. Well, think about why small groups, we kind of, everything you said at the beginning about what makes small groups so powerful, how would those same characteristics make it dangerous? Certainly can do that. But it gets back to this issue of subjectivization that you all hinted at. But the, the idea, though, is that if the whole purpose of the group being small is to encourage participation, that's what you're doing it for. When you're in a big lecture, you don't participate much. You know, when you're in a big church, you don't participate. But when you're sitting in a group of 12 people, sitting around a circle, looking at each other in the face, it, it encourages a kind of Just having this table, by the way, here's a liturgy thing. Y'all have already talked more today than you have in three lessons together. Now maybe it's because I've spent more time getting it, but you're sitting in a circle, and it just it's just creates the atmosphere. Don't underestimate this stuff, structure, space, all of that creates something. But you're sitting in a room, and I'll read this far. One of the great potential weaknesses of a small group Bible study is related to its greatest strength: its ultimate, its intimate size. By the very nature of a small group, it is intended to facilitate participation. But herein lies the great danger of what we have discussed as the subjectivization of biblical interpretation. So think about it. How then should this participation be managed, that's the question, in a way as to not usurp the objectivity of revelation? Everything we've done has been trying to rebuild in you a... a a a way of thinking about Scripture and interpretation to where you can say, no, there is an objectivity to Revelation and there is an objectivity to to interpreting it. It's not just a matter of everybody's own interpretation because that is the greatest danger I know to the Lordship of Christ, that little phrase that I hear everywhere. Oh, that's just how your church interprets it. And we've just lost any concept of actually sitting down in a room and duking it out as if there's actually an objective con- uh, truth that we can get from this passage. So let's duke it out. Let's go. Let's have some fun. But we don't want to lose the objectivity of interpretation, even if it's, it's got to be subjectively received. So with that being said, how, then, should this participation be managed in a way? Is it not usurp? What was that? Oh, is that your phone? Sounds like, an, yeah, like a witch or something. Um, Objectivity in Revelation, it to allow for the principled subjectivity of illumination. So remember, we do want it to get to a subjectivity, i.e. in the area of illumination. Now, you are theologians now. You should know the difference. I'm not going to tell you what illumination is and how it's distinct from Revelation, right? All right, I won't do it. But that's what you want to do. There's a place for subjectivity in the Bible study, in other words. And there's a place not for subjectivity in the Bible study. How do we know the difference? And here we got it. The four parts of a healthy Bible study led by directed discussion. So you're directing directing a discussion. So point of contact, is that subjective or objective? You're seeking to form a point of contact or you're trying to get the the first thing you're going to do is you're going to try to get everybody in the room and, and what I mean by it is is, is in the, the intellectual spiritual room of where this text is going to want to take us. So typically your hook is going to relate to where you're wanting to go with your took. But not necessarily. It could be a challenge. So it's something, it can be a question. It can be a, uh, an observation. Uh, it can be, yeah, it could even be a joke. Though I don't particularly like jokes. No, I really don't. I mean, if, if humor comes naturally, I had a professor. I've never once planned a joke um, or a, a humor. If it comes, it comes, and we have some fun. But um, I'm a little nervous about it in the way that trivializes things. But and it draws attention to the teacher. But the point being is that the p- point of contact hook. It, it's it's something you know. So can you imagine come up with an example? What would be like a hook? Getting it's kind of you It's like I think of it as uh, sort of plowing the soil. Getting the soil moist and ready to receive the word, the seed. How are you going to prepare that word, that soil? Have you ever thought about the problems with small group Bible studies? And there you go, your mind's starting to happen right now. I could tell a story right now. I remember when I was in college, and you know, da, 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 da. Or I could, or you could tell a little bit of a, you know, I could play devil advocate. Everybody knows that. You know, small group Bible studies is a thing. I mean, I just love them. Don't you love them? Yeah, I love them. This is great, isn't it? And you just go off and play with that, you know, and say, you know, can anybody think no things you know, you could do, play around, have fun, whatever you want to do, but you're just hooking it. Sometimes you can give us statistics. Sometimes you can give a poll. Sometimes you can make an observation about what's happening in the modern life and modern church. You're creating a problem that we're going to solve. There's so many ways to do a hook, but yeah, you start off, but it should be pretty short. You don't want too much time on that, you know? So that's your hook. Investigation now is the book. Now, what do you think this means? We've started with this relatively subjectivistic, even if it's about objective things happening, but we're trying to get people to feel and experience something that's going to make their soil moist and ready to receive. Boom. What is the book about? Yeah. This is what we call exegesis. This is the Bible and study. Now, what are you going to do there? Here's what you're going to do. Uh, did you see this passage? You know, God says he, God so loved the world that, that he gave his only begotten son. Um, Anna, what does that mean to you? And I just blew it. No, it's going to be much more of a, it's a very different kind of question. Look, Discovery. That's, that's the time now we're, we're processing. We've brought the text to a main point. This is the point of the text. Remember, there's only one point, even if it has many significances. We're looking at that one, what is this passage saying? It doesn't say ten things at the same time. It's that one point, main point. What's the main point here? And then you're going to process it. Let's look at what other scriptures say. Let's look at what our confession says. This is a good time to put bring in that confession. Let's try to let's ruminate it. Let's meditate on this, this point. What does the Bible generally teach about, say, God's son? What is it, what does it mean to be God's son in the scripture, in this passage that God so loved his son, and the worldly sin is only factor. What is a son in its use in scripture? This is where we might do something like that. Scripture direction. That might be love. What is love, really? How do we see? What do we? What does it mean that God loved the world when he sent his son? Why is that loving? Yeah, it's where you're processing. You following what I'm saying? Now, again, that's going to be less objective, but it's still objective. You're you're looking at it, and you're meditating on it. You know, the difference between Western meditation and biblical, I mean, bi- I shouldn't have said Western, biblical meditation and what we'd call pagan med- meditation, it's very obvious what do you do if you're in an Eastern sort of spirituality? What is meditation? What's, what's the goal? You might know? Empty your mind. Empty your spirit. That's right. You're trying to get out everything, you know. Just the opposite in the, in the Hebrew sense. You're literally meant to chew on something. It's kind of like, it, and so you want to think about it. You're still letting Scripture fill your mind, but you're now processing it, thinking about it. What does it mean? How does it mean? Why does this relate to this? It's thinking about It's another way to think. Um, And so that's discovery. Then the so what took. Now, where is that going to be? Where are we back? Objective, subjective. Yeah, very subjective. Okay, what's the significance for you? You just learned that, I don't know, the, the word of God, the Bible is the word of God. Now, what do you think that means to you? Well, yeah, you know, I think I need to spend more time. Well, how are you going to do that? I think I'm going to get up in the morning and start reading my Bible. Well, great. What about you, Cameron? No, I can't get up in the morning. I'm going to, but I do need to read the God. I'm going to listen to more tapes. I'm going to, I, you know, I do go to, the, I do have quiet times or whatever they are called. But I, I, I need to go to church, I think. I, I need to go to hear people who know more about the word teach me than me just teaching myself. You could see how that could go around the room and have 20 different expressions of having a high view of Scripture and how I would put that in my life. So, any questions? I'm going to go through this a little more slowly. So, this is our 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 goal, and so asking good questions is is what our, this is the key to leading a small group Bible study. But I want to do it in a way that doesn't just absolutely blow up everything you've learned all semester, and that's what I'm trying to get at here. Any questions so far? It's okay. Okay. Let okay. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Let me just take you through these bullets real well. Um, just just one at a time. So, guided discussion is accomplished by asking good questions. Duh. Wherein each question should reflect the action of that particular section. Hook, book, look, tuck. Where there's no hard and fast rule about making asking good questions, you will discover that there is an art to giving enough information in the question, but not too much information. So the participant will be led by it to discovery rather than confusion or embarrassment. I mean, there really is. I've been leading small group Bible studies since I was a freshman in college. Um, And I'm still learning how to do it. But there's a real art to asking questions that won't, on the one hand, I mean, what's a bad question? You've been in small groups. What would be an example of a bad question? Well, that'd be a good question if it's a hook or maybe if if there's some because you're going to take it to say now are you ready to get rid of your messianic hopes and politics and go to the Scripture? Okay, you could use that, but let's talk about, But but so you're going to have to tell me where you are in the four movements and then and explain what a bad question would be. I mean, but just even in generic sense, I mean, let me give you an example. So one way you could ask a bad question is you ask a question that that has such an obvious answer that everybody's looking at you, saying nothing, because they are embarrassed to think they actually it was so stupid they don't even want to answer it. Like, you know, do you believe in God? You don't want to answer that, do you? It's like you, you feel almost foolish, unless you know that I'm playing around or something. Um, so be, car- you know, there's a kind of question though that almost makes you feel uncomfortable because it's just it's too shallow for that moment. It's too bookish. It's not really asking you to check your gut a little bit, to check your mind, to, to think. So a bad question doesn't make you think. It makes you become a, a, like a parrot. And you're just re- replacing yourself. Now, on the other hand, a bad question could be that I'm asking you, I don't, so I give you too much information in that example. And you kind of go, well, no, you just kind of led me right up to it. I just, you just want me to say the word. I can't stand by, I think it's great with junior hives but I can't stand to be treated like a junior high. Do you? Where you take me through this little thing and it has all the senses with an empty word, you know, a little, not, some people love that. Maybe you love it, so maybe I'm just me, but oh, please don't make me go through there and there's a little sentence with this little empty blank word. And okay, the Bible says go to and receive God's word. What do you put in that line? You know, and I'm going, come on, I'm not in junior high. So, you you, you know, it's knowing your crowd, obviously. There's an art. And you're going to make, you never you know, half the time you're going to make good ones and half you're not. But it can be too simple. You can say too much that leads them right up to it. You're not thinking. Or it can be asking too much. You say too little, which then they get in a situation where you've really exasperated them. They're going to sit there and try, but you're going to get 10 wrong answers. And now they're embarrassed when everyone has to be wrong. So I want to give them enough to where they could think about it and come up with a, a relatively decent answer, but not enough to where they don't have to think. That's what I'm trying to do. So I'm process it, like you said. So that's what I mean by that. The most important thing, though, to remember, is that you want to avoid making the scripture mean more than one thing at once, such as to diminish the objectivity of revelation, and in through scripture as our only rule of faith and practice. So, a question like "What does this passage, sentence, word of scripture mean?" versus "Applied to you," is never appropriate in the investigative section of let's you know of, of scripture. If you're investigating the scripture what kind of question would you ask don't ask the meaning question we'll get to that later you're going to ask the don't say what does this mean ask a question like do you notice any word uh, do you, how do you see this structure what's the structure of this sentence does it look like it's it's is how many sentences do we see here how does this sentence relate to this sentence now see that's enough information where i've actually done my homework i know that there's there's a little key that's going to unlock the secret of this, this, this verse or this passage, and I'm helping you find it yourself. It's like a little, you know, a search and find sort of game. You know, is there a word that you see here that seems pretty important relative to the, what the, the, the text means? What word seems to stand out to you that says, boy, we need to know what that means because it seems like everything hinges on it? Oh, that's the word, you know, boast. I'll use that one since I've talked about it. Yeah, boast. That really sticks out. Let's talk about this word boast. And that's where I can then say, you know, let's let's see where that word is used in other places of, of the Bible. See what I'm doing? I'm investigating and I'm, I'm exegeting, using those things you learned. Um, you know, this is a theme. Have y'all, there's a theme here. Have you ever heard that theme before in the Bible? You know, fall, redemption, I don't know, sin, you know, there's stuff like that. So let me try to flesh this out for you. I'm not going to spend a too much, I can't see the clock. Would somebody give me a buzz when we have 15 more minutes? Somebody keep a clock for me, how about it? I want to make sure we do God's will stuff. Um, so here, we, here we're going to go through each one of them, and you can maybe, and we'll see what it looks like. So with a hook, you want to engage the sympathy of the people to the group. Of course, the danger is to say, uh, uh, is to say or do anything to get their attention. That's not the point. It's to actually prepare the soil. You might uh, tell a joke, story, or quote, da 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 This will tend to undermine your credibility, though, if, if it has nothing to do with the... Co- if you stand up and tell a, to- a joke, and I hear speakers do this all the time, and it has absolutely nothing to do with anything you're about to say, it just diminishes your credibility. It's like, man, he's wasting time, and he's not confident or something. He's, he's insecure or something. He's trying to get my, you know, get me on him or something like that. So, yeah, the danger is don't lose credibility. The study will be better served if you will reflect on the final inference took that are made in the so what section and introduce the lesson in a way that would help challenge somewhat uh, the participant begin to think about that or perhaps to recognize the greatest danger one will have towards understanding or applying the passage such as to address it from the very beginning you know the tension if you will that's in this text maybe you start addressing it you know and and you say yeah there's a there's a there's a problem here that we need to think about You know, how would you solve the problem of speaking to an unbeliever who's a Hindu? I don't know. Um, Maybe there's something in that text that's going to speak into that way, and you're going to want them to see that later. So it's often helpful to begin a theme and return to it at the end, such as to kind of bring the whole lesson together anyway. So that's the hook. Any questions about a hook kind of question? What we mean by directed discussion hook or Point of contact is another way to make it. Pretty self-explanatory. Book. Now, this is where I really want you to be careful. Obviously, the important thing to remember at this section is that we are not searching for our own opinions. This really is not opinionated kind of questions. It, it might have a little bit of that, like in your opinion, what's the, what what do you see is a big word here or something like that. But for the most part, you're not asking opinion questions. What do you think? It's, hey, it's, think of the word observation. Help them make observations. What do you see as the transition between this main sentence and this supporting sentence or, or clause? What do you see happen here? Is there a result clause going on here? Is there a purpose clause going on here? Is there? That's important. And you're helping them think about the text using some of those steps that we've already talked about and you've thought about them. How does our text divide itself? What words are repeated or emphasized that may be significant to understand this passage? You see, it has a real, it's not an opinion, it's its there. And you can see it. Um, you will want to keep your comments mostly to the comments to those born out in careful Bible interpretation principles, as we've talked about, as with relying on the curriculum and or commentary of choice. This is where you don't want to be the expert if you're not. Let the scripture be the expert and get help with your commentary or your curriculum. It's okay. Any questions about the book kind of questions? Try to think about the small groups you've been in, and maybe that will help you process some of this. Okay, yeah. Or maybe the ones you've led. Yeah, but I would that's right that's but what you're really asking is what is the point here and that's an important question to get to you better get there but don't ask that early don't ask that with just look before you do that you want to ask a lot of observation questions Your that question you're talking about gets to the next section on the on the t- the look I mean the look book what is it hook book look There you're going to say, the transition between the book and the look is that question. Okay, we've noticed a couple of words. We've noticed a couple of sentence structure issues. We've looked at the context. We've done this. We've done that. What? There's your question that you just asked. What do you think this thing's really trying to say here? And yeah, maybe that's a good discussion. And there is a little bit of a, but now, see, it's a guided opinion. It's not just a unguided opinion. You've given them enough facts and helped them see enough things and observations. So think of that look as you're making observations about the text. Think of that whatever the next one is, hook, book, look, as really now, okay, let's look at what it means and reflect on that. And that's what you're doing in that kind of a question. So that takes us to look. Having investigated the text of God's Word, we are now ready to summarize the main point the idea is to state as clearly and plainly as possible the good news remember i don't care where it is in the scripture i don't care if it's talking about sin i don't care if it's talking about hell there is something redeeming about that topic now you're thinking how is hell redeeming anybody want to guess how would you that's a pretty good challenge for you so how how are we glad not that that people go to hell that's not what I mean, but just that there is this teaching about hell. How how does that meet a problem that we need to solve? Anybody guess? Okay, there's justice, and there's a choice. Yeah, we talked about in the sermon this week that Packer's statement. If you remembered it, okay, hell's mercy. So now hell is so you've established justice and it's a justifiable curse of God upon all of humanity. It sets we will never know mercy except for there to be a hell. Is your point right? Okay, yeah. So you're starting to look at that and you know and and not only I, I think to me in a, in a deeper sense, I, hell and the doctrine of sin has anybody better made sense of why the world sucks. I mean, think about the alternative answers. This is where you could. This is a lot of look stuff here. What are the alternatives? It's all just random chance, fickle. Just it's just random. That doesn't really. It's purposeless suffering. In other words, I don't like the word purposeless suffering. Or what about okay? um, You know, uh, something's really. We're just inherently bad. That that or, or or we're you know that we. Or we don't have choice. Like you said, choice. So there's things you can say that are very redeeming that you say, no. The doctrine of sin and the reality of hell is the, it's, it's the one religion that looks squarely in the face at our problem and says it stinks, and that something's really bad happened to us. But we still remain valuable. Sin is oppression. Sin is uh, uh, decay. It's Bad stuff, but underneath it, something good is still needing to be protected. That's the amazing balance between looking at the evil in the world, and yet still having a high view of of, of humanity. I can both have a high view of humanity, and have a high view of human responsibility, and have a high view of justice. And you put all that—it's it, one of the parts in a matrix of ideas that helps me understand that, yeah, I still have a very high... We still believe in the Imago Day, Even if we believe the Imago Day has been horribly stained or horribly defected with this rebellion and the curse against that rebellion, which is the evidence of hell. So those are kind of what I mean. Everything you say, the, when you're coming up with this main point, you want to try to put this now main point into the greater redemptive story. That's look. And that's what you're doing use your confession of faith okay so we've talked we've come up with the main point and it has something to do with the doctrine of sin you will do yourself a great favor every bible study to go locate that general theme in your confessional context okay what does the church what is the church's consensus about this theme we call sin and it will it'll be amazing because that's basically a meditative document. I mean, if you think about it, what's happening there is the church is meditating corporately over 2,000 years together on the meaning of sin as derived from the Scripture. You're on a very safe ground because you're not now doing this lofty thinking by yourself. You're doing it with your brothers and sisters for 2,000 years. It's been tried. It's been tested. It's still fallible. Somewhere it's going to be wrong, I'm sure, but it's a lot less foul than you are individually, right? We've talked about that. So, you're, yeah, you're processing it. Relating it to what Blank said, maybe. Quoting someone. You know, this is where you're looking at it. You, There's all kinds of methods of looking at it, but that's what you're doing. What do you think? Is this helpful? You, you think like you're making sense? Okay. And then the took question, of course, this is the one that... Usually happens through the whole Bible study if you're not thoughtful. <laughs> okay, what does it mean to you? You know, let's really look at it. But here's the danger. What do you think the danger is? Personalizing it too much. Good. Where you read yourself into the text when the text wasn't meant for you to say, we all have our Gethsemanes. No, I think this was a purely unique thing for Jesus. He was going to hell. But we can now talk about what does it mean that he went to hell for me? And so be careful that the scripture what you say is the main meaning drives the significance it can be multi-dimensional its significance but you do want it to relate it has to be at least a good inference I did not say good and necessary I wouldn't have to say meaning is good and necessary. this would be a good inference it needs to be yeah okay that's that's a legitimate inference that this is what this text would mean for you you know, and again, so the took question, we talk about, you know, Romans 3, 21, and Christ's death satisfies God's law, both passively by satisfying God's curse against sin, and actively by Christ's righteousness supplied to us, and received as grace offered by faith alone. That could be an example of this is what Romans 3, 21 and following is telling us. That's the summary. So, took question, in what way might that change our life when God with God and or others, that he actively satisfied our need to be righteous, that he passively, I'm writing this, I'm showing this because this is like an example of what the sermon was this week, so I threw that in there. So what would you say? I'm not trying to test you here, but what would you say? What could be an example of in what ways might this change the life with God and or others? That this is true, that Christ's death satisfies God's law, blah, 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 blah. What does that mean for you? It can be simple. And what is that? Okay, good. I mean, it's even simple. What's the most simple application you could get? God satisfies. Jesus Christ satisfies God's law. What did that just do to you? You're feeling it. Now put words to what you just did. You can rest. Good. Perfect. I can rest. I'm not anxious anymore about, you know, pleasing God. He's been pleased. He's pleased with me because he's pleased with Jesus. Remember all that stuff I did in the sermon about God's word coming down and I'm well pleased? God is pleased. And in Christ, he's pleased with me now. So now let's just talk talk about all the ways that we, all the dysfunction that's in our life that emanates out of our Fear of God's condemnation and the way that impacts my relationship with God, the way that re- impacts my relationship with you. I mean, if I'm still worrying and I'm still basically I'm insecure, I'm I'm struggling in my own self-esteem, I'm struggling with all this stuff, and is that going to impact my relationship with you, you and you? Of course it will. I'm going to be trying to prove myself all the time. I'm going to be trying to prove myself to God all the time. Oh my gosh, this is going to revolutionize my marriage. What if we didn't have anything to prove to each other to each other anymore? because God's law has been satisfied and I'm now right with God and he accepts me and I accept myself and I can accept my spouse cuz she's in God and man this this could have a really great 3 hour lush conversation now but it's still all rooted in the simple fact that Christ's death satisfies God's law which means I have all the tickets I need to get to heaven and get to his right place. And I have all the suffering needed to, 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 to exhaust hell. So I don't worry about that either. So the answer is when I suffer, and then here's one, I you know, none of you said yet. Think about it. When I suffer, so one of the things I should get out of this is what? Christian assurance. That God loves me. That's what we mean. I'm assured that God loves me and accepts me. Now, How's that going to, the, the leader might say, okay, well, how might that change your, the way you you deal with suffering? So when, when you have a car wreck, what could you be tempted to think that this passage says you can't think like that anymore? Tell me what that is. I'm asking you. That's a directed question. God's punishing you. Now, what does this passage say, Pete? Are you being punished by God with that car wreck? Okay, so now how are you going to think about this car wreck? He's teaching you. Good. Discipline. God loves those He disciplines. It may be He's disciplining you for a particular sin at a particular time where you were waving your hands around and trying to sip your coffee at the same time as going around a curve and you ran into a telephone pole. Maybe it's that direct of a discipline. Like, man, you got to stop waving your hands around and stop drinking your coffee and by the way, look for telephone poles. (laughs) But oftentimes it's not like that. It has no correlation with anything you've done at all, but it does have to do with the fact that God has a great plan for you and is working that plan in your life. Is that a hand back there? Okay. Thank you. 12 minutes till when? 745. Thank you. Um, There's a couple things I want to say, but uh, making it missional. This is really important, so I'm just going to leave you with this one. There's a couple of things. So now you've done this Bible study, but hold on. This was all meant to get people to Jesus Christ. It was all meant to be, by missional, I don't just mean making Christians. I mean, God God is on a mission. But particularly, remember that we want all of our small groups to be missional. What is a missional small group? Um, a small group is not necessarily one which is doing some kind of an evangelistic Bible study. That's not what I mean by missional. Because every single Bible study can be missional. Every single small group can be missional. It's if, if it's members love and talk affectionately about the city and neighborhood, I mean, missional means I'm for you, I'm not against you, right? Don't let your group divulge into all the crappy stuff that's happening in our city. Early in the church and the plant, people used to know this. I hope it's still true, but I remember somebody came to me and said, don't make the mistake of criticizing New Haven around Pastor Graham. He'll bite your head off. And I hope I've still got that reputation. Um, yeah, there's some reality issues, but you know we love our city. I, I raised my three kids in the city. I love the city. It's been good for us. Got crap in it, but it's been good to us. It's my home. I remember r- talking to a bunch of graduate students. I was leading a study, and we got in the room, and it was really clear because there was a couple of people there that had actually grown up in the city. And, um, and they were just talking about New Haven like an armpit. And I just stopped and I said, I want you to look at this woman right here. It was really an awkward moment. She, she was born and raised here. Now, how does that make you feel that you said what you did? It was a really big kind of moment. He was being an ass. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it was good. There was a little repentance and reconciliation. It was really cool. But yeah, we don't talk bad, Uh, we we, we love our city, we love the world, we love, you know, we're for it, we're not against it kind of thing. Yeah, if we are critiquing it, we're we're sad when we're talking about When we're sad when we're critiquing it. If they speak in a language that is not filled with pious tribal or technical terms and phrases, we're disdainful, you're the small group Bible study, work hard, I know I probably felt this a lot, but work hard at getting it out of the tribal language of the Christian faith. You know, if you if you were to walk into that room as a, as a neighbor and you've never been to a Bible study, and by the way, talk like that in your small group, even if no everyone in there, you know, that's the problem. Usually when I speak to everyone I know. And so it gets tribal. But in other words, get out of the cocoon. In their Bible study, they apply the gospel to the core concerns and stories of the people of the culture. If they are interested and engaged in the thoughts of the surrounding culture and can discuss it both appreciatively and yet critically. Show respect with regard to the opposite sex and show humility towards people of different races, cultures, and event, and even religions. I mean, that's missional, right? Make you, die of all nations. No distinction between Jew or Greek, favor-free, free free, male and female. If they do not bash other Christians in churches where wherein seekers and non-believer people, A, will be invited, and B will come and will stay as they explore spiritual issues. I mean, these are sort of the the marks of a missional church. Put it in the vernacular. Again, tribal language, avoid it. Avoid the we-them language. Um, Mitchell Church avoids ever talking as if non-believer people are, are not present. You know, it's really that simple. Uh, the moment you just think that what happens if, I mean, think of someone maybe you know, like my neighbor comes into this into this Bible study who's not a believer. How's that going to change? Have you ever had that experience, by the way, when you're in a small group and somebody walks in? Boy, it changes everything. You're thinking that person everything you say, don't you? Every time I'm going, everything I'm thinking, I'm thinking, what is that person thinking? I do that even when I preach. I'll see somebody walk through the door, kind of a little bit late, I've never seen before, and i mean, almost the whole sermon's thinking, what are they guys thinking? (laughs) How do I say this a little differently? It stops me. Okay, I'm going to move on. Um, I talk more about missional community. Discerning God's will. Um, The very most important thing that we're going to start with that we've learned is what, what we call the sufficiency of Scripture. Do you really believe that? that the Scripture is sufficient. This passage here is a good thing. All Scripture, breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction for training in righteousness, that the person of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Is there anything that the Scripture is not applicable towards? Be careful. Huh? Bad work, okay. But it's applicable to know that it's bad right? Yeah. Okay, good. No, we really believe that. A high view of the Scripture believes in the sufficiency of Scripture. I don't need any continu- other revelation. If I don't have any other books in my life, I'd be, su- I'd be sufficient to have my Bible, and I could live faithfully with God. I'm going to tell you, I do believe that. I'm a fairly learned person, so don't think that I'm being some kind of nutcase. Um, all this stuff we study here that's over beyond the Bible is not necessary. <laughs> the Bible would be enough. I mean, I surprised somebody the other day was wanting to train al- elders in a, in a poor survivalist situation and said, I don't want you to use anything but your Bible and your, con- and your confession of faith that helps you read your Bible. I don't want you to read one book in this context. And just make sure you walk them through all the categories of faith that our confession walks through, using Scripture to do it. In the context where this person is going to have to be dealing with people who've had college educations and all this other stuff, they don't need to know what Nietzsche said about blank. It's it's all relative to context. Um, So the sufficiency of Scripture is the first thing I want to say. Um, How is it sufficient? By good and necessary inference, GNN. Does it speak to every issue needing decisions? I'm going to say yes and no. Wouldn't you? Does it tell me what kind of tie to to wear? Well, no, because I never wear ties anymore, praise God. But if I do every once in a while, I ask my wife. So yeah, it does. He told me I have a wife. Ask her. There's more to that than you think. No, there really is. I mean, yeah. It's okay. Let's get other person's taste, right? So the point being is you may be surprised, but not in the way that you think. Doesn't it... uh, I don't know what this sentence means. Doesn't is by G, N, direct us to other new revelations, signs, dreams? Yeah, doesn't. So, think about it. Scripture's good, but how many people have heard? Of, you know, making you know, what is your shroud? Now, that's very tribal language. What am I talking about if I say, "Have you? Ha, where's your, where's your shroud?" Anybody hear that language? Charismatic yeah. use a lot. It's the Gideon shroud. Throw out the fleece. Maybe sometimes it's fleece what are you looking for? A sign. God, give me a sign. I had so, when I was young, script biblically, how many times did I say, give me a sign? Thank God I have not prayed that prayer for a long time. Just give me any sign. I'll hear it. I'll look it. I had a great faith at the time. I remember sitting out on a beach saying, come on, you could do anything, God. So if you want me to go to the ministry, just show something come out of the water right now. I mean, that's how ridiculously ideal I was. No. He has never answered my. I, 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 for many years, would ask for any kind of assignment or anything. Just tell me you're on my side here. Anything. Never, ever, ever has he. Every time I ask it, it comes, it comes back worse. Now I'm thankful. But I used to get really mad at he did that. I even went to get rid of him after a couple of times of that. But yeah, that's not the way to go. Does it happen by G-N-N, goodness and provide wisdom? Yes. So here's what I want you to think about. There's three views of discerning God's will that I would say relate to many evangelicals today, only one of which I think is the proper one. Option one, uh, it's discerning a divine blueprint revealed in Scripture plus clues, i.e., modern evangelism view, God has a specific and detailed plan for each Christian's life, quote, blueprint, such that knowing God's will, guidance, involves discerning that specific plan. How would I do it? Reading Scripture, often out of context, proof texting, such as to go beyond the original intent of Scripture by looking for clues to to confirm it. An open door. If I followed every open door, I had a great open door down south before I planted this church. Great open door. Thank God I didn't take it. My whole life legacy that I've loved would not have happened because it was an open door. It was the easiest door to walk through. Sometimes we confuse the easy with the right. So that's an example. Um, So that's option one. I'm going to illustrate these in a minute. Um, The assumption is that God's sovereign plan for each life is intended to be the source and pattern of guidance for the individual But if all depends on whether or not you read the providential clues, coupled with selective readings of Scripture, uh, i.e., note the kinds of clues looked for. Open, closed doors, signs, coincidence. Just happened that I was praying about whether I should buy a car. Just happens that I went to school the other day, and it just happens that someone says, I have a car to sell you. Would you like to buy it? And I'm thinking, well, I don't think I like that car, but the fact that it came up tells me I'm supposed to buy a car, so now I can go buy the car I want to buy. (laughs) And... That's called continuing revelation. Okay, option two, by divine blueprint plus additional revelation. This is the charismatic view, not contrary to Bible. I don't know of one charismatic, let's just give, give, be honest. Every charismatic I know, and I know many, would say that, you know, by that I mean that people who actually would say, and at least they're honest. The first group believes in continuing education, but they hide behind all this other stuff. This group believes in and they're just saying, I do believe in it. God continues to speak revelatorily to me. But they would be the first to tell you, I would never, you know, believe that that revelation is right if if it's contradicting anything the scripture teaches. The Catholics believe that, continuing revelation, at least they believe it corporately, not individually. And the Charismatics believe in continuing revelation, but they believe it individually. But all of them would say, not contrary to scripture. But that's still not something we can believe in, right? What are they going to do? They're going to ask for a special prophecy, a special word, a word from the Lord, a dream, a strong inner conviction and intuition, and that's God speaking to me. Option three, by divine wisdom, which is what I believe is the traditional view, the historic view. There is—this well, is a surprise you. St- I know you thought I was not going to say there's a divine blueprint. Of course, there is. God's, I read it today, the scripture, if you were there in the baptism service, that before we were even yet one day, God already had planned our, you know, and planned. It's right there in Psalms 139. Um, by divine wisdom, what we mean is there is a divine blueprint in the mind of God, and yet the divine blueprint is not revealed as a blueprint. It's, it's, it's the walk of faith, wherein wisdom, to discern God's wisdom, is albeit fallibly, Uh, what we're seeking this side of heaven. The assumption is the efficiency of Scripture. Interpreted according to original intent, guidance comes by God making us wise. There's no seeking for the clues or signs. There's no need for a direct word of God. It's a step-by-step you know, over time acquisition of understanding and knowing the mind of God. Sorry, that is going to be, it's the long method. You don't just wait to to study the Scripture to become wise when you have a hard decision. It's going to be the whole worldview that's going to make that decision. The values that's been informed by that worldview. What's important? What's not? What's my view of the now, not yet? What's my view of God's providence? What's my view of revelation? What's my view? Every single solitary doctrine I know that we have studied whether it's in confessional theology, becomes part of the web of belief that becomes a more tighter and perfecter web through which we will interpret everything that happens in life. And in that interpretive aspect of interpreting life, we now filter it through a worldview that discerns right and wrong, having become closer and closer to the way God thinks in the mind of God. That's why the Scripture emphasizes seeking counsel, trying to put together, so my web has a few holes in it, let's say. Maybe if I talk to Anna, well, she'll, she'll patch up a little hole over here, you know? So I'm going to get counsel. Here, what they see is, is the worldview of God, and you're going to test that counsel against Scripture, by the way. I don't ever take counsel just like that. I'm going to get it. And it can be from different sources, even unbelieving sources. Godly counsel is the key, and better, godly aged counsel, according to Scripture. The gray hair, I see you. So um, think about that. Now, you're going to tell me I'm over time. Yeah. Yeah. What time is it exactly? All right. Thank you for your help on that. Um, So think about it this way, and I'll leave it with this. There's three landscapers. Landscaper number one is the Christian house sitter who prays about being a good house sitter without any specific instruction, goes to the garage and finds specific tools laid out, a particular type of fertilizer, photos of the same, some plants at a local store from these and other such clues puts together what she hopes is a reconstruction of their plan intended by owners. That's kind of the clue method with a fundamental, it's good to be a servant. It's good to love. I know they want, you know, God's word that the couple who left has told me they want a, a garden Hey, I'm going to figure out what kind of garden they want by putting the clues together. Okay, that's like number one. Number two, it's the Christian house sitter who prays about being a good housekeeper. Oh, hold it! What happened? to All that stuff here? Did it get in the next section somehow? Oh well, sorry. Well, basically, it's going to be you're going to pray, and then then God. Uh, uh, what what's going to be said here is that you actually have a manual that God. You know, you pray and you walk into the garage. And there's a manual there that says step one, step two, step three, step four, step five, right? But you, you had it kind of a supernaturally given, there was a light that turned on or something, I don't know, that one's kind of dumb. Landscaper number three, the Christian house sitter prays about being a good housekeeper, knows the owners are, what the owners want, i.e. they know the, the mind of the owner. Um, and it has made it her ambition to study the art of landscaping all of her life. Watches videos, on landscaping, reads journals on landscaping, goes to school and has a degree in landscaping, also knows something about the personalities and tastes of the owner, and comes up with a plan based on the information available and in his or her knowledge of the owner. As it happens, the homeowner chose a sitter because they trusted her knowledge anyway. <laughs> That's the wisdom model, if I could say it something like that, or something like this smiley face. All right, we're going to, um, you know, this is the picture that I want you to go home and study. So you want to see how this all works together. How do you make good decisions? Work the triangle, I call it. You know, there's personal values from a biblical revelations point of view or biblical worldviews at the top. There's internal uh, 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 factors. Who am I? What in God's providence has he made me to be? And then the third area is what are the circumstances around me? What are the issues around me? And you put those three together, and somewhere in that little gray triangle is wisdom. That's the idea of, of a wisdom model. Um, you're, you're considering the Word of God, all of its worldview and values and perspectives. It's not proof texting. It's much deeper than that. Um, you're considering who I am in God's providence, what I am, get other opinions about who I am, what I need, what's good for my life, what's my financial situation, get some help with knowing about, and then that third area, what are my what are my challenges, what are my issues, what are the opportunities? You put all that together, and finally you begin to make your peace with this seems to be the right thing to do. And do the best you can. Yeah, what do you think? We could talk a lot more about that, right? Any question, though, about it? I'll get up there in five minutes. Anything? Yeah, y'all go ahead and take off, musicians. I'll be up there in a minute. I want to make sure. I just I know there could be a lot of good questions. Is there any one question you're just saying? I really wish we had time to talk about this. course.
0: Yeah. I wish Hmm.
1: well i agree um you know i've given you some resources if you want to learn more about discerning god's will go to that book that I gave you uh, step by step is a good book by him and there's another book called the callings i think one of the problems we make in discerning god's will is we come at it like this you know you know the god we talked about this last today what is it yale the uh, god country yale but notice what they did we put that in a vertical relationship together a lot of people judge God, family, church, you know, church work. Wrong. God, period. My whole worldview. Be a disciple of Christ. And then he calls me into three callings. So I have one calling to be a disciple of Christ in three spheres. See, that helps you. Think about that. And how you weight those spheres in the light of, of priority. And that might change in different seasons of life. When my three kids were at home, I was much more prioritized with family than I am now. You know, and it changes, but you put that together. But see, that's part of that triangle. That kind of what am I serving? Well, I've got five kids, so that's going to change your decision whether you do this job or not. Maybe. Um, but that's what wisdom is. It's putting the whole triangle together. But there are some books and things you can look at. Any other question? Yeah. And you're, you're, you're the question exactly would be what, then? Yeah. Well, I think that's where you, you've you done your homework with your commentary and done the best you can to figure out what this text actually says and try to show them that. You may not be able to convince them in, in a 45-minute conversation, though, to your point, maybe. But but at least you come out, and that's what, at least where your confession helps. If you have the confession of faith sitting over here, at least you can give them the parameters. Whatever else this passage says, it can't say this. Because by interpreting scripture with scripture, we know that the scripture elsewhere says that's wrong. That's that's not true, or something like that. So there's you kind of whittle it down, is the best way I know how to put it. But then you, you take them to someone maybe that knows more than you do, you know, and y'all talk about it. I've had people bring people in my office and say, you know, we've been talking about this and we're seeing things differently. Help us out, you know? And I'm not saying I'm Mr. Know-it-all, but, you know, you just kind of get further and further. All right, I gotta run. Thank you, guys.
0: Thank you for listening to the School of Discipleship. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you like the show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org. Until next time, this is CPC Podcast.